This week's Behind the Idea is on Bright House Financial, an insurance company, and our theme is that insurance is really hard. For example, here's how Mike summarizes the situation. So you have a parlay of two really tough things to convince yourself of. I think that that's where my eyes roll back in my head and I say, Einhorn, you that's your job. Go for it. But like for me, I don't know. And here's where Mike starts to come around on a way to understand an insurance company and my thoughts. It's like Klarman's margin of safety where he's just talking about you're like looking pretty skeptical. <laughs> well, this sounds like biotech investing. You've somehow made insurance investing sound like biotech investing a little. Is this sort of story knowable? Or does Bright House Financial need more light shed on it than we can manage ourselves? We discuss on Behind the Idea. Welcome to Behind the Idea, the podcast that looks at ideas from the Seeking Alpha ecosystem to find out what makes great investment analysis work. I'm Daniel Schwartzman. And I'm Mike Taylor. Today we're looking at the mystery of an insurer's balance sheet and a major investor's take on the stock. Seeking Alpha is the website for stock market news and analysis, featuring ideas from investors all around the world. Nothing on this podcast should be taken as investment advice. I have a position in Berkshire Hathaway, which will probably come up on the call, and Mike has no positions in any stocks named. Bright House Financial, ticker symbol BHF, is a spinoff from MetLife that has had a rough time of it since coming public. They are also one of the biggest positions in famed investor David Einhorn's portfolio at Greenlight Capital. The stock has become a battleground as we on Seeking Alpha have published a couple short ideas along with several long ideas on the stock. Einhorn himself commented on our most recent article to explain where he disagreed with the author. So what's going on with Bright House? Is it a classic unloved spinoff or a bad bank? Value or value trap? The theme of today's episode is just insurance is hard. So... Mike, knowing that we're going to have a tough time nailing the specifics here, what is it that BHF does? Thanks, Daniel, for uh, asking that question. Uh, I'm sure I'm going to look really super unsophisticated and unknowledgeable as I try and break this down, but I'm going to give it a shot anyway. So listeners, feel free to educate me and Daniel about the insurance business and accounting and all the related analytical considerations. But staying on a high level, Bright House is an insurance company. Okay. So it what it does is it undertakes liabilities on its balance sheet uh, by selling products basically to its customers. Uh, you know, just this, any insurer will agree to pay some amount in the case of an event taking place usually, but also will agree to pay certain cash flows to help their customers manage risk. So Bright House does annuities, sells annuities, which is basically an agreement with the customer to pay some amount of cash over time going forward. They also sell life insurance, which you know tends to pay off when people die and has a portfolio of old products as well. The way the business works is the customers pay cash in 
for these agreements, these insurance products. Mm-hmm. And Bright House turns around and invests the proceeds from those cash flows in a portfolio of assets that hopefully will earn premium over the expected interest rates on the liabilities. So basically, in the long run, Bright House, like all insurance companies, is expecting to generate value by sort of out-earning whatever it contracts to pay out in the future by selling its policies. Just a couple other notes quickly on the insurance business in general. There are capital requirements and other regulatory requirements with respect to the kinds of risks that insurers can take and the kinds of moves they can make in the financial markets. And I think it's important to note that insurers can be better and worse than each other and earn different spreads between their sort of liabilities and the assets on their books. But there is a bit of a grouping effect that comes from the regulatory environment. Uh, It's not as the, I mean, you can think of something like AIG where, uh, you know, the the liabilities got blown out because they were selling uh, default insurance and all that came home to roost on them and the company imploded. But by and large, for these kinds of vanilla products, you would more or less expect most of the time for the performance across different companies in the same space to be relatively similar because it's highly regulated and they compete with each other. So Bright House is in that space. It's in this sort of normal-ish annuity life insurance space. That's, That's what it does. But I guess there are wrinkles in terms of its circumstances. So maybe, Daniel, what do you think about the fact that it's spun off from MetLife, that some investors seem to think that it's kind of the ugly a stepchild, ugly duckling, ugly, ugly cockroach of the, of the spinoff world. So let's talk about that. So that's the business case, more or less, as best as I could do. Yeah. So what do you think about, uh, what do you think about the model and what do you think about the investment case a little bit? So we're going to be dealing with a lot of big names today, and so we should shout out one who guides our philosophy on spinoffs, and that's Mr. Joel Greenblatt. Woo! <laughs> yeah, <And> Joel! <laughs> there's a lot in his famous book, You Can Be a Stock Market Genius too, about spinoffs and about the perceptions around spinoffs and the the headwinds that they might appear to face, but then what's fundamentally happening. And so... The market, to a wide extent, has absorbed that lesson, and yet we still find cases of spinoffs outperforming, despite everything we know about this pattern of behavior. There are still good spinoffs out there. And so the argument as it pertains to Bright House, I don't know, I didn't confirm whether MetLife was forced to spin off Bright House as part of the SIFI, the systematic systematically important financial institution. I don't know if they were required to spin it off because of that or if they just decided to dump it. But there's a perception that this is not a great business, that they just put their toxic assets into a bad bank, as it were, and got rid of it. And so this presumption that it's going to somehow revert to book value is not is not as solid as it needs to be. And that's a big part of the 
if you go, the bull case here is basically, it's a spinoff. It's got those class characteristics. It was a small chunk of MetLife. MetLife then had to sell off a chunk of their, they still owned some large percentage of Bright House that they had to sell. So that caused further selling pressure, which is a favorite feature of spinoff dynamics. And they trade, the stock trades at a significant discount to book and to tangible book which is more conservative as a way of valuating, valuing a firm. And most interesting to, I think, the discussion, insurance companies are known for returning capital. So this whole, it, I think it spreads across the financial stock universe, but it's just, you know, in insurance, it's relevant. You make that spread, you pay some chunk of that spread between your assets and your liabilities back to your shareholders. And that's sort of the safe, steady, insurance company model or financial company model um it goes from banks banks are known for capital return it goes to i own shares in some bdc's business business development companies that's basically a loan book where they then give you the some of the interest back and so that's kind of the dynamic here bright house isn't going to be doing significant capital return until i think 2021 and so there's a little bit of that time that popular term time arbitrage here. And the perception is that if you just wait out this tough time as the business is stabilizing, they've got a few funky things going on. Once book value stabilizes and starts to grow and they start to, they feel like they have sufficient capital for regulatory requirements and additional bad events, they'll start returning capital to shareholders. They've actually announced a small share buyback program recently. So Maybe they've already gone on the path towards that. But that's, I think, the the basic of the bull case is that it's unloved, it's cheap, it is going to, over time, become normal uh, along the lines of what you, you gave their business model to be. Yeah. And once they have that, then the investment will have worked by then. It will become valued at more than it should be. So I think that's the that's the case. I didn't get into too many of the particularities, but what does that on its surface? What do you think about that case? So I like the spinoff opportunity is one that I continue to believe in. Just in general, I think that you can find. I believe that the sort of dynamics that govern a spinoff, where you know a new company comes onto the market, it gets spun off from the old company. In this case, that's Bright House getting spun off from MetLife. That often there's not the same fanfare there that there is for an IPO. So there's less interest in the investment world in buying the shares of the company. So that contributes to potential undervaluation. Then, you know, institutional investors may not hold the stock because the company may tend to be smaller or not fit their investment strategy. So one of the only ideas that have really worked out well for me in my active investing career was a spinoff. I think it's interesting that the classic dynamic took place here with Bright House, that it opened at around 70 and then had sold off, as you expect spinoffs to continually sell off in the weeks after the spin. But then it kept this this is the part that's sort of the wrinkle is that it, <laughs> it it kept getting cheaper and cheaper. It didn't ever real it didn't snap back the way you might expect some to do. So I think 
I understand the interest in it. And actually, I looked at this. I looked at Bright House because I try and track the spinoffs that are coming out and see if I can, you know, try and earn some money on it. And I just looked at it and I, I, my eyes just like rolled back in my head and I was like, ah, <laughs> oh, it's an it's an insurer. Like, there's no way I'm going to understand this well enough to have a position. And I think that's so. I think that's one of my concerns with the bull story and the bear story, to be honest, is that I think you can talk yourself into thinking you maybe know more about what's going to happen than you actually do. So you go, okay, discount to book. Great. And the earnings are a little hairy right now, but it's going to be okay in the long run. And I mean, if you believe, like I said at the, at the beginning that insurers because they're regulated and because they have sort of constrained behavior are more or less like each other, then you might expect some mean reversion here and you might expect the company to uh, come back to peers. But the, the problem with that is it's very difficult to understand the, the characteristics of what's on the books. What are the liabilities? What are the, what's the portfolio of expected uh, future cash flows the company is going to have to pay out? And what is the portfolio of assets? What has the company invested in? And how confident can you be that the spread between the returns on those two things is going to be positive? So I get the temptation. I think the initial temptation is nice that, yeah, it's a spinoff. Clearly, the market's not interested in buying this thing. And, you know, eventually you could see that things sort of normalizing and there's some mean reversion there. So I... I'm sympathetic to the bull case. I'm sympathetic to David Einhorn, who I admire. His book, Fooling Some of the People All the Time, I read that right before business school. It inspired me a lot in terms of oh, what investment research means. I saw him at the Tilson case learning conference, and I actually made eye contact with him, and that was a really special moment for me. <laughs> Shut up. <laughs> no, it was like, I know you're having a rough time. Me too, man. Me too. I, I, and I just, I just, feel just gave him a little nod. Yeah, sitting next to Berna, and I was like, "What's up?" I believe in you. <laughs> so I, so that's my take. It's this is a very unknowable sort of situation to me, or it's what I, my eyes rolled back in my head because I'm like, insurers, man, that's like a trap. It's a trap for sophisticated people to sort of get lost in the puzzle. But if you can solve the puzzle, then you can probably do very well on a story like this. The discount is so great to book. So that's where I had a lot of opportunity, but also a lot of uncertainty and possibly even sort of ambiguity where you don't even know where you are. What do you think? Well, let's talk about the bull ca- or bear case as well, just to kind of put that on the table so that we can see if there's anything more there. We had two notable articles. Panther Investments, they published an article... A while ago, I think you and the pro editors selected as a top idea. And the general, I like, first of all, the reframing of everybody expects price to converge to book value. But in my view, this will be book value converging to price. And the variable annuities are going to sink book value was the argument. There is just not enough because of the way they're built and the way they're they're just not designed to be profitable they you're giving away upside by them being variable 
but you're still you're not a hedge fund you're an insurance book like you can't go out there and invest in fang you have to still invest in fixed maturities so it becomes really hard to get the spread is how i understand it panther investments compares the stock to genworth and it's interesting how everybody's looking for different comparisons panther compares it to genworth a lot of the bulls compare it to voya which was spun off I can't remember who the parent of Voya was. I think it's a Dutch company. But Voya was spun off and has worked out really well. And so that's that's one major issue. And then what Ranjit Thomas wrote, which was the article that got Mr. Einhorn to respond to, was that the company is sort of in this catch-22 because they need to... They need to meet the regulatory concerns. There's this thing called CTE 95, which is conditional tail expectations in the worst 5% of cases. And the company says that they are reserved 2 to $3 billion over that threshold so that they can, which they, they equate to CTE 98, meaning that they can cover all but the worst 2% of scenarios, as I understand it, of tail risk in the market. And Thomas's point is that they're not going to be able to, they, they need to have enough capital to do that. To protect their capital, they're writing, I think they're writing puts on the stock market to protect in case the stock market suddenly goes down. But as they long as the stock market, owning puts, okay. And as long as the stock market goes down, or sorry, so they have the puts that the stock market goes down to, to hedge, but if the stock market isn't going down, they're eating away their upside and they're never going to be able to build enough capital to start returning it. And so they're kind of stuck in a catch-22. And, you know, the company is losing money. They're reporting adjusted earnings, which they feel are more representative of their long-term earning power. And there's a huge delta in the two. And I think, I, you know, we, we were both there for the heyday of Valiant. We are skeptical, I think, of adjusted earnings. But I think there are cases where adjusted earnings make sense. But I don't know how to make sense of it. And so the bear, bear case is basically, they're not, this just isn't a good book for them to own. They don't have attractive, they're, they're not writing attractive policies to make money on that would allow them to actually return more than what they have to spend to maintain their capital. And so you can talk about book value all you want, but they're not going to earn returns on it to make it reasonable. And so, I don't know, does that, you, you're still of the opinion that it's too hard to know this. It's too hard to suss that out. Is that fair? I mean, maybe I, I can't, it's hard for me to even imagine how much work I would need to do to get there. But yeah, I think, I think that analysts should probably consider the possibility that they don't really know what is going to happen with the company. And one thing that I really like about Ranjit Thomas's article is that he uses a lot of illustrative examples that sort of simplify and boil down and model how an insurance company works. He says, basically, you expect to pay out at a certain 
uh, interest rate. I think he uses an illustrative rate of 6%. And then he says you expect to earn at 8%. And that's how the insurance model works. And that's great. But if you're making an argument about how these assets and liabilities are going to perform, you're in this territory of how these risk portfolios are going to perform. So you have two issues. The first order issue is how much do you know about what's actually in the books? How, do, how much interest rate risk is on the asset side and how much interest rate risk is on the liability side? How much of that is hedged out in terms of what's going to affect the operating earnings? How much stock market risk is on each side? How much default risk is on each side? And then on the liability side, it gets even more complicated because you have, you know, I think actuarial risk in terms of how much you can expect to pay out in life insurance book is pretty knowable, but it's it's still a source of risk. Do you understand that risk? And in terms of just the policy holder behavior, are they going to roll out of your policies and into more attractive policies? Are they going to do other things that sort of optimize for their own payouts against that acts against your interest and as an insurer? These are all risks that you have to sort of get your head around if you're going to analyze one of these companies. And then on the asset side, it's the same thing. How much stock market risk is the company taking? How much interest rate risk? What What's the portfolio of mortgage assets look like. And then on top of that, the company then layers on additional derivatives and stuff. Ultimately, what you wind up with is on the asset and liability side, you have two portfolios. Mm -hmm. And then your expectations about how those portfolios are, this is the second layer of uncertainty. Your expectations about how those portfolios are going to perform is basically a broad market call. It's basically some sort of macroeconomic call. So that's why that's my defense of my case that this is a that this is a sort of unknowable set of future outcomes if you take this model then you're you're basically assuming you know what's on the books sufficiently that you come to a conclusion about the sort of long-term profitability or unprofitability of expectation and then on top of that you have each analyst kind of making some sort of broad market call Someone, one of the analysts talks about sort of the stock market performs well. That's going to be disappointing in terms of how Bright House is positioned. And then you can make other guesses about where interest rates are going to go. All of those things seem like the kinds of things that a security analyst should probably avoid trying to hinge a thesis on. So you have a parlay of two really tough things to convince yourself of. I think that that's where my eyes roll back in my head and I say, like, I mean, I don't know. Because even after hundreds of hours of research, are you going to be convinced one way or the other? That's where it's like, all right, Einhorn, you, that's your job. Go for it. But, like, for me, I don't know. What do you think? Are you well, buying I think, it? Or is my I, model wrong? I think... That's where the opportunity is ultimately. I know we will throw things into the too hard pile, and I think I don't think any investor should ever feel bad about that. But <laughs> but <laughs> the investors who have the time and know how and experience to w sort through that 
that is where you can find opportunities as long as you don't outthink yourself or whatever else. So I'm willing to give the benefit of the doubt that there's something here that would make sense for for Einhorn to consider. And I think it's interesting to just go to... We published, you know, he published his quarterly letter and it's on Seeking Alpha and other places and he addresses a couple of the bear concerns in that letter and then he also jumps on the Ranjit Thomas article and says essentially I think you should have adjusted differently for a past quarter which would show that the book value is fluctuating not decreasing as it were and then he he gives you that argument of look there's a lot of one-time things you can choose what to adjust or what not to the company is required to adjust certain things and not other things on their reports and right. They say it's a 2021 story, and so fine. And so what I think is interesting about it is what you're saying about it's essentially a market call. It's interesting with somebody like Einhorn, who is a value investor, who has the performance hasn't been as strong in this current market, and he's been quite open about that, but also quite vocal about we believe in our philosophy, and he has every right to be, and it's a philosophy that I think appeals to both of us in general outline but this is essentially a position where you're getting a discounted exposure to the market you're getting and i was trying to pull up i don't have an easy way to sort out what the tangible book value but the book value let's just take the book value is almost three times what the current share price is so in theory you're getting discounted exposure to the market but it's an interesting when you think of where this fits in your portfolio and this let's use the insurance model if you're talking about CTE 98 if you're talking about that worst 2% of risks in that event where you're hit with this what else is hit in your portfolio and how much and in the you know worst 5% or worst like you can almost treat this like an insurance company and look at your portfolio and see what your exposure is and I don't know. I think the that that's an interesting component here. I think also that that whole because it is it's really when you look at the numbers, it's really this year that they're struggling with this equity derivative losses or whatever they call it on their hedging losses. On, yeah, whatever it is. They, yeah, I'm trying to pull it up, but they like it's really ballooned this year. This this expense due to their hedging and due to whether it's actual costs out the door, it's net derivative losses it have really exploded this year. And so, or in the post MetLife era, at least. And so I don't know, what, what do you think about that strategy? What, cause I, and I think about this with hedging a lot overall, on the one hand, it's, you're not, you're never sure where you're going to be right. But if you're hedging and taking away X percent of your upside, but there's still the chance that you're wrong. It's like a pair trade, let's say. You could get the dynamic totally wrong there. Like there's still – hedging doesn't save you from being wrong and it limits what you get when you're right. I don't know. I, I think that's something endemic to Brighthouse's strategy or tactics, whichever you want to call it, but also to investors as a whole. What do you think about their sort of hedging usage and how they're approaching that? Yeah, I. it's funny. 
any investor, whether you're an institution or an insurer like Red House or you're a, you know, an individual like you or me or hedge fund manager like David Einhorn, you have to make you have to decide what risks you're going to take and include in your portfolio. What I think is interesting about insurers in particular is that they it comes back to this basic model of agreeing to pay out some amount of cash in the future and then investing proceeds of the premiums on what you expect to be a higher rate of return. And then they, on top of that, there are really only so many ways to skin the cat. You're kind of deciding, okay, how much interest rate risk do I want to take? I'm going to sacrifice returns if I hedge that interest rate risk and how much equity market mm. risk am I going to take? And I'm going to sacrifice uh, expected returns if I hedge out that risk. And you're still left with whatever this, you know, this spread is your return on equity is at the end of the day. So I don't know how to transcend all of that portfolio management discussion on a quarter to quarter basis. I kind of, I guess that that leaves me more on in the Einhorn camp. It's like, look, you just have expected values. There's variation from the expected value, but in the long run, this should be a positive expected return. If they're Barring extreme scenarios where they're really getting things wrong in some sort of meaningful way, as long as they're staying in good stead with the regulators and they have a reasonable capital cushion, it should be fine. And when you look, so you mentioned before Genworth, which is the sort of, its, its book valuation is half of what Bright House's valuation is now. So if Genworth is the worst case scenario, then you have 50% downside. But a lot of the insurers seem to trade somewhere between one and one and a half times book. So if you're at 37% of book now, then I, that's a multiple, that's a multi-bagger. I don't know what you call it when you don't want to use bagger. That's a like three... Three to five x triple return. digit. Yeah, it's yeah. a three three. Yeah, it's a three to five x return, triple digit percentage return. So if you just assume a uniform distribution, then it's an obvious bet to take because you just have a plus EV play. So I think that's that's. I think, but then I think you maybe it's just that simple, and maybe that would be the brilliance of the bull thesis is to not get too in the weeds on what the portfolio construction actually looks like. The risk there is that you miss something that would tell you not to make a bet. And the market is telling you that this thing stinks. So, Well, I think what's interesting is that I, it looks like you, you pulled it up on our document. Uh, what looks like a, is that a green light capital excerpt that you have on, on your notes, Mike? Yeah, I have the initiation, the two paragraphs he wrote on the initiation letter. And I think it's interesting because it's obvious for David Einhorn's green, green light capital position. So, And it's really broad strokes, but it probably is just reflective of the thought process. And he just says, look, we're, we're in at 57.92, which they could have gotten it cheaper, but they have a big position and then he goes into the basic Greenblatt spinoff story, essentially. He says, look, this is just a pretty normal business. It's a traditional spinoff. It's a sort of ugly stepchild of the bigger company. And 
I, this part I love and was conf- it was I love this. The tone of the spin-off roadshow was noticeably downbeat with management advancing a business plan that does not sound particularly exciting for shareholders. I just love that that's the bull case. Like Einhorn's just like, "All right, game theory time. I'm one I'm one level ahead of that." Like I I saw that roadshow, but like I know what that re- what that really means is that other people are going to not really fully appreciate the good parts of the business. I just love that that's in the letter and he's like that's part of the bull case is like how bad management thinks the business is. But, you know, that's part of the spinoff. And we've seen in Greenblatt's, Greenblatt's book, he talks about how, you know, sometimes the management, the incoming management has an incentive to kind of downplay the prospects of the business because it helps them achieve hurdles to future performance or whatever it is. He mentions that ca- cable cowboy guy. What's his name? Really? John John Malone. John Malone would sort of famously structure these spin-off offering documents in ways that would make it difficult for someone to see the true opportunity because he's at best indifferent to what the fate of retail investors. And then he just says, look, it's at half a book value. Peers trade trade better than that. It's an insurer. What I said at the beginning of the call was that the regulatory environment makes these things essentially perform the same over the long run, or that's sort of the expectation. He's looking for a double. I get why. So yeah, I'd, I. I think it's it. also interesting how he, he says they the analysts are laser focused on the downside, but that's too pessimistic. And the converse is upside if the markets are doing well, and so that's where you see. And one thing I wanted to note from a, one of the first bullish article that I looked in our series, which was by a guy named Antau, there was a comment on there that said something like the proxy statement says that they're going to be incentivized based on capital return. And so that's one of those clues that people love to read in the spinoff when you're talking about incentive incentives. Right. And I, yeah. Einhorn says management is well incentivized if the shares appreciate like that's where you're trying to read between the tea leaves to see what the opportunity is. Yeah. So, you know, I think if I were going to look at this, we've talked about this before. We talked about it with Alibaba, how sometimes you have, you sort of face a choice of how you just know that there's a risk there. You're not sure that you can really get much more detailed other than that. This risk may impair your investment eventually and you may just be stuck with a loss if i were going to approach this story from the long side that would be how i would approach it i would stay at a high level assume that the variation in all the hedge portfolios and all the performance the fluctuations in earnings and all that are just sort of statistical variation but that the expected value over the long term is positive what you have on Einhorn's side here is this explicit comment from management that capital returns aren't expected until 2020 or later. If that's the case, then you can see why other investors would get distracted by the quarterly and annual reports in the intervening period and why a bear case might get borne out and overemphasized. At the same time, it sure does look like a melting ice cube. But I think... So the real question isn't 
maybe this isn't important. Well, this is a takeaway that I'm arriving to on the spot, so it feels really important, is that it's not whether Bright House is going to do well or not. That's not the question. The question is, are you getting paid? Is the Are you getting the odds? Are you getting the right odds to make the bet? Right. So, and go ahead. Well, I just, I think it's those odds. And then I do think there is that sort of, I agree on the high level, but there's got to be, I think the question and what Einhorn is basically saying in his comment is, the question is, what is normal for them and what can we expect? Even if we assume there's going to be variation, what is, does their business work? And he has confidence that it works. He has confidence that they have a spread and they have whatever else they need to earn their money back to then repay shareholders and so forth. And it's it's true. It's once we talked about this in the context of, you know, stocks where they have big events in their career and all of a sudden they pop. If Bright House gets to the point where they string together two or three solid quarters and book value stabilizes or goes up and they start to return capital, then yeah, you're going to want to pay up to book value for it or tangible book value, whatever. Like there's going to be that, that's the question, but is that to be expected? And I think the there's real concern there and real good points have been raised by the Bears so far. And so it makes sense. It makes sense to me that we would stay on the sidelines, not having the time nor expertise to sort this out. But I do think that's that would be the core thing for me is what is normal and do they make money at normalcy? Yeah, and that's the question that I, I go back to wondering whether it's knowable. I think I might stay at the higher level. And this is going to, you know, people will kill me for this, but I kind of, I get the bull, I'm starting to arrive at getting the bull case. If, if you're at a... If you expect on the on the positive side to sort of revert to two, three, four times the current valuation, and your downside is even a hundred percent loss, you don't have to be right that often to make this work. It's like Klarman's margin of safety, where he's just talking about you're like looking pretty skeptical. <laughs> well, this sounds like biotech investing. You've somehow made insurance investing sound like biotech investing a little. Well, look, I think we have I, we probably have the same level of sophistication when it comes to getting into the nitty gritty for each of these. Right. Maybe, I mean, we could probably take apart all the, the entire Duplo set and sort of eventually arrive at a clear understanding of how the books work on an insurer. I don't know if we could ever get there with some of these biotechs where the science is difficult and the regulatory action is challenging. But either way, we're not on that level right now. Right. I guess it would come back to you could just have a very simple model where the spread is positive because insurers tend to have earned positive spreads. And it's it's not that hard to do that. But that's not a very good argument. I wonder what your return would be if you just like if you bought every insurer that traded less than you know, less than 75% of book value. Does that, I wonder what the expected, what your, what a backdated portfolio of that looks like or what your expected returns are on something like that. I think you have to adjust book. I think this is where, and this is where a lot of the argument goes, right? Einhorn is adjusting a certain way and Ranjit Thomas is adjusting another way. You know, just looking at the balance sheet, we see 
the the um there are products that probably cancel each other out or are very similar should you count those or not what's tangible what's not we were talking right before the call about how a lot of these asset and liability values are based on just a reasonable and validated assumptions about how the portfolios will perform going forward, but they're each sort of subject to these variants. And so the actual present value of the assets and liabilities is subject to a lot of uncertainty. So, and that's where Einhorn says that's just noise and it's noise that varies around a central tendency that has positive expected value. And then the other side, Panther and Ranjit Thomas are saying, no, these are real concerns. You know, there's, and one thing I do want to point to is that management did highlight in the most recent call sort of this share repurchase authorization, which is not a, that's not like they're actually returning the cash to shareholders at this point, but they're trying to signal to the market that that's sort of on the agenda. And then they even mention on the call, I think that they're suboptimally leveraged, that they have room to make additional borrowings. That is ammo for a kind of bear thesis. And I think that's the direction that the bears are taking here is these these have been some ugly earnings reports, hairy and poor and seemingly poor performance. That's what the market thinks at least. And then there are these forward-looking signals from management that don't seem necessarily focused on solving the problems. I'm really being very wishy-washy on this one. I'd, I think it's because you kind of have to shift between these different orders of thinking. Are you thinking of breaking apart everything and breaking apart management's activities? Or are you thinking just in the general terms of this is a this is a business model that should be profitable in the long run and it's not valued as such okay so it sounds like we need to figure out because management's incentives are obviously to make it profitable profitable so unless there's some degree so either they don't understand the model properly or there's some degree of incompetence or they're not weighing the risks appropriately which all kind of are in the same spectrum or they're right, and like you said, at some point this will stabilize, shake out, and be a positive generator. And so I think that's where, if we explore this further, that's where we need to spend our time talking to people is what is going on here, how unusual is this, how typical is this, and what, as a passive minority outside shareholder, what can we do to assess how likely it is that book value in this case will stabilize and grow over time yeah i as usual you know we might know enough you might know enough just knowing that book value is a good say book value is a good measure we don't know we just don't know and i but i'm i wonder whether getting into the nitty-gritty of the understanding all the balance sheet accounts would actually help you make the decision or not. That's what I'll be interested in. Or is that all just noise? Yeah. So I think what we should do from here, Daniel, is 
we should get absolutely roasted in the comments and the and on Twitter for not understanding how insurers work. That's our first step, and then the next step is we'll get some people who know more about this will and talk to them and see what else we can learn here. But that, um, yeah, that sounds like a plan. I'm what I so here's what I'm proud of. I'm proud that we got away from our sort of growth stock, exciting Shopify, Alibaba, Facebook, Google kick. And we got down in the weeds to a dorky little value story, a spinoff and a complicated, difficult one. Feels like the analytical degree of difficulty was higher here and we were not selling out this time. This is like, this is like one of those B-sides that the drummer wrote that we could let the drummer sing. We went home on this one, Mike. We went, we went home, home on this one. <laughs> <laughs> we went back to our value and dumpster diving roots for, for this one. Lo-fi and you can hear the record scratches. That's, that's the sort of oh, yeah. idea Get we've got here. All right. So okay. Bright House or Dark Shack to be continued. <laughs> In her, insurance is hard, folks. Insurance is hard. That's our, that's our story and we're sticking to it. All right. I think we got it. Yeah. All right. See you, Michael. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Mike copied his joke about Dark Shack Financial from Ranjit Thomas. So hat tip to Ranjit. If you want to send us feedback on our jokes or our understanding of financial companies, email us at btipod at seekingalpha.com. If you can leave us a review on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or anywhere else, we'd be grateful for your support. We're grateful in any case. We're returning to one of our most popular topics next week on Alibaba, so stay tuned. This has been a Seeking Alpha production. Thanks for listening, and see you next time on Behind the Idea. Now,